You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. I am Tyler Donahue. He is Sean Fitz. We got a lot to get to here on this second episode of game week number five. The number four Penn State Nittany Lions set to host the Indiana Hoosiers. Two and two coming into this matchup. 7.30 kickoff back under the lights of Beaver Stadium as the spotlight in general nationally continues to expand on this Penn State squad. Sean, you're back at home base. Welcome home. Uh, we'll be back in the press box. Fourth consecutive Big Ten, uh, fourth consecutive home game here in Beaver Stadium. Uh, and then it's off to the Big Ten road once more. Uh, but it's good to have you back, man. Yeah, it's good to be back and uh, good to be back at home. Fourth straight week. Uh, that's a that's a lot in a row, man. I, I know people make the trip every weekend and you know, four, four in a row is quite a bit. So but it's a night game. It'll be interesting. It's a stripe out. There's a lot going on. Um, we're not saying the R word in terms of this game. Uh, Indiana, of course, beat Penn State last year in controversial fashion. Uh, they have not started out the same way this season. Um, and it's a. Uh, it's definitely an interesting team to track over the first uh, month of month of the 2021 season. So Penn State uh, heavy favorites, and I think that line continues to move as as we speak. Really, not saying the R word, a common theme in your football fandom universe, Sean. And yeah, we've heard a few times. We'll hear it again as this week goes on. Was that, was that a Redskins joke? Whoa, whoa, we don't say that. We definitely <laughs> don't say that, buddy. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. Um, Sometimes I have to ask if you're telling the joke or not. So I'm just, (laughs) it gets me sometimes. Well, Franklin's looking for an edge this week and and he's made that pretty clear, Sean, Um, by any means necessary. When you get to do it off of a victory, it makes it a lot easier to swallow. He brought up that point from a psychological standpoint, you come in off of a 21 point victory. You're the number four team in the country. You haven't suffered a loss yet. Guys aren't quite as defensive when you start criticizing their play and you start pointing to things that are becoming problematic themes on the field. They're a lot more open to that dialogue, and that includes the staff, that includes the players. And, and I think that's important to note here. Early feedback, and this is just one man's feedback, and uh, that's Keaton Ellis. He says that he feels like they did come uh, prepared and, and ready to answer that bell on the practice field on Tuesday. Franklin said pleased with what he saw from his squad on Sunday, Sean, but that's when they're wearing shorts. That's when the sun is shining and the music is blaring. He wanted the intensity high Tuesday and Wednesday. He talked about the impact that needs to have in the trenches for the ground game. But in general, he wants to see what he said was lost along the way a bit in week four, the edge of a football program with plenty to prove still. Well, you, you take a look at the Villanova game and the perception is going to be they, they beat an FCS team by, what, 21 points. Um, and obviously it should be more than that. And, uh, you know, the game, as Franklin mentioned, not even close through most of three quarters, three and a half quarters. And then the, the backups came in. So, you know, you rattle the cage. That's what you do. You you go out there and say we should have done better. Um, that you know you're missing some things, and w- and when you're not sharp, and you're when you're not uh, as sharp as you need to be, that's when letdowns happen. Now, it's good to have a letdown against an FCS team and get out with a 21 point win. Um, but you, you can't have that as you get into the meat of your Big Ten schedule. So no problem with that. I, I do agree. You know, you need an edge in certain positions. Uh, uh, the offensive line has been under the microscope this week. The running backs have been under the microscope this week. And, and, and I think rightfully so. Um, that's that's a team that you should push around and um, you go out and you don't get the production that you want. And, you know, you, you can talk your way through that for a couple of weeks out of the season and, and convince yourself that, stacking the box, doing all these kind of things to take the take away the running game. But at some point that's got to work. And that's uh, we've seen that in the past that that Penn State has has gotten going and and when they're at their best when they can run the football. So um, I don't think there's anything overly complicated about uh, what we're going to talk about with that. It's just uh, needing an edge is is an easy uh, is an easy out for Franklin. And I think that that's the way you go about it. And well, Franklin also really applied that term the edge term to his offensive line. And he said specifically on the ground, when we want, when we need to run the football and everyone knows that we need to run the football, we need to be able to run the football. That's essentially what it broke down to. Um, And he feels like right now that requires more edge. And he also said that does apply to pass protection. It applies to finishing off uh, blocks, helping guys in pass protection. If you see a man, help a man. (laughs) And I think the big common theme here though, we heard from Troutwine last week, we hear it from Franklin to some degree today. 
you, the eyes, the reaction time. It's it's not just manhandling guys on the football field. I think there's been a lot of conversation on our message board as well. It's playing as a cohesive unit. And right now, you review what we've seen through four weeks. There have been moments where they've really done a great job protecting Sean Clifford, but there have been too many lapses, and you can't continue to survive those as you get into the meat of your Big Ten schedule. Can't really hang your hat on that Auburn game when they were phenomenal in pass protection, and you you see the top of what they can be and see kind of see wh- where they can be as a as a unit. Um, but you're still having the same conversations you had in week one about you know moving guys out of the way and and dealing with a certain combos here and there. So I think that's that's the worrisome part of this is you're still having those same conversations. You're still trying to figure out is Eric Wilson your left guard? Does Bryce Effner get some more time or something like that? Um, so I think that that's probably the 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 worry here is that you're still in week two prep and in you know from week one to week two you want to see that growth. And you're doing that from in into week four, or excuse me, into week from from week four into week five. So, um, yeah, they've got to work that out. They got to figure out what's uh, what's what's working, what's not, um, and go for it. That I don't think the tight ends are exempt from this as well. So those position groups that we we talked about how great they were in the off season, tight end and, and running back need to uh, need to continue to take step forward. Yeah, need to continue to take steps forward. I apologize for my uh, my rustiness here. How about that though? The the those two positions are, are the ones that through a month of the season we're saying, man, this offense has really done a lot. But if they want to hit their potential, you need more from the running backs, you need more from the tight ends. We thought maybe that would be the bedrock that when things went awry, those were things you could lean on. And not to say that each position hasn't had key moments where Noah Kane in the fourth quarter, I don't think you get out of Madison unless he takes it up a notch and is able to be effective there down the stretch. And the tight ends were huge against Auburn, but there's been some disappearing acts along the way from both position groups. And, and by no means did James Franklin label those tight ends as exempt. Sean, uh, he, he talked about them on Saturday on the field post game, talked about them Tuesday unprompted, making sure that they were part of the conversation. If you're talking about shortcomings in the run game, he wants us to know and he wants the fans to know that, Hey, the tight ends need to be called out on that too, because right now they've got strides to make if this offense wants to be where they're at. That involves the passing game. He wants to see more involvement. He wants to see more production. But I think right now, go out and really contribute to this crown game and start to open things up for yourself. Yeah, I'm curious what uh, how different the scheme is this year in terms of what they're asking the tight ends to block, because they look pretty good uh, at the end of last season, those two young tight ends, Strange and, and Johnson specifically. Um, and this year, just probably haven't seen the same uh, amount of growth that you expected to see from that time or from that time period. Well, we're going to shift the tension. We have a few more things to get to regarding Penn State that we are uh, uh, you know, ex- expecting to talk about right now. Sorry, some backstage chatter happening right now. Um, Sean, I'm going to introduce, <laughs> let you introduce your buddy here because uh, normally I think you'd be maybe hosting him uh, if you were making the trip this weekend. Uh, but uh, I know it's it's great at Hoosier's insight. Take take it from here. We've had him on I'm the show before. Up here. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. We've we've had him on the show before. Always offers tremendous insight. Um, the lead Indiana writer for the Indy Star, Zach Osterman, a close personal friend of mine who often stays at my house for these games. He's not coming this weekend. Um, I, I don't know what's in that can, but he's not coming <laughs> this weekend. We're going to miss him for sure. But he is here for your latest, the latest on the Hoosiers. And boy, it's been an interesting month out there, huh? <laughs> yes, yes, it has. It's been. Uh... Yeah, I don't think it's quite what anyone expected. Although, you know, it's it's weird because, like, if I told you Indiana was two and two going into this game, you wouldn't really be surprised. And yet, I think the the journey for Indiana has been what has been obviously pretty strange. Yeah, that uh, that that start. You expect Michael Penix to come out, and I'm not saying anybody's talking Heisman, but the way that he played against Penn State on that last drive last year would be indicative of 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 a great quarterback, and it just hasn't been there for Penix. I know that you've kind of stumped for him to to for Tom Allen to stick with him, um, but what what's up with this? What's up with the uh, Penix this year? It's just been really out of character for him. I think he just did not look comfortable for about the first three weeks of the season. And, you know, the, the truth was Indiana was much more of an explosive offense than an efficient one a year ago. And, you know, it, it, even all off season, I think, you know, people in, in my job were kind of saying, you know, listen, there's a lot to like here and Penix has undeniable talent. Indiana does need to get some of that efficiency back. They, they need for basically the explosiveness over efficiency 
kind of balance to it just sort of been a COVID thing where because of protocols and how you have to prepare and, you know, when you got to get four guys ready at every position instead of two, you know, you, you just sort of choose the things that think you think give you the best chance to win. Um, but it wasn't the most efficient offense in the world last season. And that got kind of hyper magnified in, in two of the first three weeks. I mean, Idaho, you know, you can kind of ball up and throw in the trash because that was just a – a mismatch, yeah. but um, we, we had some Idaho here a couple years ago. It's, it's yeah. better left on, on, on. Yeah. I mean, and it, Iowa was kind of a basically worst case scenario for Indiana, like a, a defense that I think only allowed 17 points, not off turnovers, allowed seven of them on a 56 yard run on the first drive of the game. Then Penix had a, uh, on third down, you can argue it was catchable. You can argue maybe it was a little bit behind DJ Matthews. Either way, it pops up into the air. His third snap of the game, um, it pops up into the air, and uh, the, the guy's name suddenly escapes me. He scored two touchdowns in that game. But um, Iowa DB runs under it, takes it, you know, houses it for another touchdown, and all of a sudden it's 14 nothing less than four minutes into the season. And that day really got away from Indiana. And obviously Penix looked really rough that day. He threw three picks in total. But I think the, you know, in a weird way, the Cincinnati game was both more encouraging and probably more frustrating for Indiana because a lot was going well. And then it turned basically when Micah McFadden got ejected for targeting. And once it did, Indiana just kind of couldn't stop making mistakes. And, you know, Penix threw three picks again that day. And yet if you kind of go back and look at his performance, it's a lot better than what it was even against Idaho, frankly. And you could kind of see those, like the, you could see a little bit of the wheels turning in the way you knew they were capable of, but you still sort of wonder, it's wondered and probably still do wonder, um, you know, is there going to be any part of this where he just can't get it back because of the injuries and just everything else? And, you know, quite frankly, Indiana's offensive line is still kind of a work in progress. To Penix's credit, he looked a lot better Saturday. And I know it's just Western Kentucky, but Western Kentucky at Western Kentucky is the sort of game that is just monumentally tricky for a program like Indiana. There's no winning it, which means the only thing you can really do is not lose it. And that's not a really good place to be in when you're going and you're playing in front of, I think, the largest crowd in that stadium's history. And obviously it's it's kind of their Super Bowl because they have nothing to lose. But Penix, I mean, really did – look it's weird because he didn't throw a touchdown pass but like he looked imminently more like himself in, in that western kentucky game he was 35 of uh, 53 for 373 and everything was in rhythm everything was on time you know you, you could you could literally see him you see his head moving as he was going through his progressions in ways that he probably wasn't the first three weeks and the question is just kind of you know was that just a one-off thing because it is a conference USA program that isn't usually known for playing great defense or was that maybe a, a follow-on from Cincinnati of actually between them, Michael Penix and Nick Sheridan have kind of worked out where the sweet spots and kind of the, the rhythm, you know, the rhythm points are for Penix in this offense and, and they're going to be better off long-term. I think this weekend is obviously a, a pretty good test of that. And frankly, this month is because I think Indiana has got to find a way to go two and two at least this month. If it, if it wants to be in the bowl picture come November. Zach, you've got a really good feel for this Indiana squad by now through the years. Psychologically, we saw last year when you've got a, a rough game, one can be difficult to bounce back from. And it can be something that maybe haunts you the rest of the way down 31 to three at halftime after so much momentum last year. I know with, with the Penix injury that that was a bit of a cloud hanging on the off season, but when you come out with a thud like that and all of a sudden you're looking at the scoreboard and you're buried, do you feel like part of that game is going to be difficult for, for Indiana to, to brush off? I mean, possibly um, again, I, I think it, it, in in their own ways, I mean, like, I can't understate the degree to which Indiana's performance against Cincinnati just completely turned on its head when McFadden was ejected for targeting. I think there are a couple of statistics running around, if, if you like the, the advanced stats, and I, I do, um, 
at least, you know, sort of using them as uh, to, to sort of run the rule over things um, before at one point in, the, in that first half, Indiana was doubling up Cincinnati on snaps. They had twice as many snaps offensively as Cincinnati had. And before McFadden was ejected, Indiana was up 14, nothing um, Cincinnati actually on the play where he was ejected. It was like a long incompletion where Desmond Ritter almost got sacked. And um, I think something like 8% of Cincinnati snaps were resulting in a first down or a touchdown at that point. They actually had only crossed the 50 once. And this was, this was what would have in all likelihood been Cincinnati's last drive of the half. Um, and then after that, after the ejection, 40%, more than 40% of Cincinnati snaps resulted in a first down or a touchdown. And so wow. there was, I mean, Penix wasn't great, but like if you looked at Indiana, they were running the ball a little bit. They were getting at least maybe three, four yards on first downs. Penix was starting to find some seams and some windows. He was really hooking up with DJ Matthews in particular. And like defensively, they were, they really, I mean, genuinely were dominating Cincinnati. And then McFadden, they lost McFadden and they just, both for what he is from a talent perspective, and I suspect Penn State fans are familiar with this kind of linebacker, and also kind of what he does for a defense. You know, his communication, his reads, his experience, all those things. He's basically a four-year starter, more or less. Um, Lunch bell guy, yeah. Indiana just doesn't have that. You know, the, the drop-off in Indiana's defensive depth chart from one to two is probably not, not greater anywhere than – behind Micah McFadden and, and it all just kind of fell apart a little bit and they were outscored 38 to 10 from that point. So, you know, it, it, that Cincinnati performance in another world where Michael McFadden is blocked cleanly on that play and isn't sort of getting through on the quarterback and lunging toward him as he throws the ball. Um, actually, Indiana, we're talking about an Indiana team is three and one that's beating a top 10 team is probably ranked right now. And the perception of this team is, is different. So I guess my point is, it does seem at very least like they've sort of picked themselves up from Iowa and, and been able to take Iowa and put it in a box and say that was just sort of a total system failure, but it's it's not going to be reflective of what we're going to be, you know, down the line. On the other hand, you know, that can be true. And you can even look at that Western Kentucky game as kind of a nice little sort of ease into Penn State. It's not as tough as going to Happy Valley, but it's still a tricky road game. You get to go somewhere and feel good about your performance again, get your quarterback feeling good. All that can be true, and Indiana can still lose on Saturday night. Like it's it's still Penn State at Penn State on on Saturday night. Like it, it's it, it, you can you can say all those things, and all those things remain true for Indiana, roughly speaking, the rest of the season. And Indiana still lose thirty four to twenty one. You, you know what I mean? That's just the nature of this game, and yeah, um, and that's the nature, frankly, of this season. Like I, I and I'm I'm going off on a tangent. Forgive me, but like. I had a lot of sort of national media people saying to me in the offseason, like, I don't know if I believe in Indiana the way other people do. And I, I sort of said, like, well, what do you believe in Indiana then? And the, the common answer is sort of like, well, I think Indiana might challenge, you know, it seems like a lot of people think Indiana might challenge Ohio State. And I said, well, I think that's possible. Like, if, if, if a lot of things go well, I think that's possible. But, like, Vegas is over under for this team in the preseason with seven and a half wins. And it's because of the schedule, which has only gotten tougher now that Michigan State's not a walkover and Rutgers is better and Maryland's better. And so my point is just like all preseason, I would say things like Indiana could play well over its first five weeks and still wind up two and three. And people would kind of nod and agree. And then admittedly in part, probably because of the way the results have unfolded, but also as the results have unfolded, people said, oh, my God, what's happening? And it's sort of like, well, this is just what happens when you dealt a really tough hand in the schedule, when they put Cincinnati on the schedule, they did not envision that they would be a, a dark horse playoff contender. Tommy Tuberville was still the head coach, not in the U S Senate. Um, you know, it just, they've all, they've been dealt a tough hand with scheduling. We'll see if they can kind of navigate their way through it, maybe starting this weekend, or maybe frankly starting after the bye week next week, uh, because after that they get Michigan state at home, Ohio state at home, and then Maryland on the road. So. And I want to reiterate for our listeners, McFadden was a first half ejection. So you will not see him missing the first half this time around. We've seen that for a couple Penn State defenders this season where it's second half ejections. Then they're gone till halftime the next week. Not the case here. Um, so defensively then, um, you know, with him back on the field, you know, Penn State's had a ton of success. Sean and I were just discussing this through the air. Sean Clifford, uh, his top three receivers coming off of a, a strong performance, to say the least, against Villanova. But 
the ground game underwhelmed against an FCS opponent. We haven't seen that take off to this point, and that's been a bit of a surprise. So in this matchup, what do you think Indiana can do to maybe give Penn State some fits here, give themselves an opportunity uh, to come in and, and maybe pull off an upset on the road? It's been kind of a weird year for Indiana's defense. Um, they are like on, on the one hand, their, their baseline numbers don't look great. Again, like you, you pin them for 34 points at Iowa, even though 14 of those points are on pick sixes and um, 38 points against Cincinnati in a performance that, you know, kind of turns around 180 uh, after the, the ejection. They didn't look great last weekend against Western Kentucky. Now, I think it is, again, possible to sort of say, hey, that's a one-off. It's a very – Western Kentucky runs that fast-paced, wide-open system, and um, not everybody's going to do that. Um, you know, we saw Indiana struggle similarly to that, you know, that sort of system against Ole Miss in their bowl game last year. Um, you know, if, if Penn State wants to speed it up, and you guys know better than I do how fast Penn State plays, my impression is that they are not sort of breakneck speed. Um, if they want to speed it up, I wouldn't blame them because the last two times Indiana seen a, a true sort of high tempo offense, it's really given this defense trouble. Otherwise, if you, if you sort of break apart their performances, I actually think they've been pretty good this year. Um, you know, again, like only 20, 20 points at Iowa, um, allowed actually by that defense, only 17 of them, not the product of turnovers. Um, you know, really good in the Idaho game, really good in this for, for large portions of the Cincinnati game, ultimately kind of couldn't turn it around the way they needed to. But um, I think the the one area where Indiana might – Indiana's missing their fourth corner now and might be missing – basically what Indiana's really got is a, a, a solid sort of rotation of three corners – and then a fourth guy that they really thought was kind of going to be able to work into that rotation as this season went on, Chris Keys, and sort of spell those three a little bit more. And Keys tore his ACL against Idaho. Now Jalen Williams, who's one of that core three, uh, was in con con excuse me concussion protocol coming out of Western Kentucky. It, it, Tom Allen said it, it looks good so far. Um, but and then that was on Monday when he said that, but obviously concussions aren't something where you can just say, well, you know, once the swelling went down, we realized it's not as bad. We'll tape it up and it'll be fine on Saturday. So, um, you know, I mean, Indiana, they're doing a lot of funky stuff with their fronts, especially when they can force third and longs. They do have kind of a mixed history with Sean Clifford. Like, you know, I think two years ago in happy Valley, Clifford really hurt them, especially with his legs. Last year, obviously, they got him into some, disadvant uh, some disadvantageous situations and what picked him off twice. I think one either run back or maybe run back to like the three that Indiana punched in for one of its early touchdowns. So they're going to do what Tom Allen defenses do. They're going to bring pressure. They're going to blitz. Um, they're going to play downhill. But they have gotten a little bit more creative with the way they use their fronts, their defensive fronts, a little bit more odd front looks. Um, a little bit more stuff where, especially in passing downs, they'll they'll basically run a defensive end down to the three and put a linebacker at one end of the line and sort of basically dare you to guess whether or not that guy's blitzing. I think the one big question really is, I mean, and, and Fitz will know, I, I Indiana, the Cincinnati game was a noon game, so I was able to watch a lot of that Penn State-Auburn game. I mean, Clifford looks night and day this year from what he did at times last season. If that's the Sean Clifford that Indiana gets, they're going to really have their hands full, no matter what Penn state does on the ground, quite frankly, because, um, and this Indiana team has been good against the run, but if you get that Sean Clifford, that is just, just mixing all his throws well and getting a lot of different guys involved. Um, I do think it's going to stress this, this defense probably as much as it has been. I mean, frankly, with a nod to the fact that Western Kentucky is probably just going to do what all conference USA teams do and put up an insane amount of points and yards, because that's just the way that conference works. This is actually probably the best offense top to bottom Indiana's played yet this year. And that's even with respect to Cincinnati, but I just think Penn state's probably got a better offense. And so I think, I think Indiana's defense is better than what its numbers show. And it's certainly very experienced. You know, I don't think anybody is going to, 
like I, you know, I, I've seen people saying, "Oh, how are they going to handle the atmosphere?" I mean, th- these guys are all juniors and seniors who've made the rounds in the Big Ten and also opened the season at Iowa. So, you know that that part of it, I don't think is going to bother them any more than it, it normally would. But I also just think that they're getting a completely different, potentially a, a very different animal quarterback in Sean Clifford. I just think he's a lot better this year, and um, they're going to have their hands full basically getting him off his game and getting him off a couple of his key targets because they probably also haven't seen a receiver as good as Jahan Dodson, for example, yet this season. So, On the offensive side of the ball, big blow, uh, DJ Matthews Jr., third leading receiver and kick returns, punt return specialist, uh, tore his ACL, unfortunately. Um, he's out for the season. So how does uh, Indiana sort of recoup and move on? Obviously, Fry Fogel is one of the best receivers in the, in the Big Ten. Peyton Hendershot, one of the best tight ends in the Big Ten. How do they fill that void and how do they try and make it work without uh, without one of their top options? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's sort of it's it's kind of like six and one half dozen to the other in the sense that on the one hand, I, you don't want to overstate it. DJ Matthews basically he played and he'd appeared in three plus games for Indiana. He basically had one good game, um, but you also don't want to understate it in that I think Michael Penix was really comfortable with him at slot receiver. I think they built a really good rapport in the offseason. They're both Florida kids. Um, I don't know if they were working out at home in the summer, but I know that that all the reports we were getting coming out of like summer throwing sessions and player led stuff were that they were really, really in sync. And, you know, if you go back to that Cincinnati game, I mean, Matthews was about the only receiver that played well in that game, frankly. I mean, Freifogel had three or four big drops. Like that was kind of another element of that Cincinnati game was Penix's numbers didn't look good, but his receivers really did not help him. And about the only one that did was DJ Matthews. And he broke, I think, I think he had about 125 yards receiving in that game. And, um, you know, replacing him, I mean, Indiana certainly got bodies to do it. Jacoby Hewitt, I think, will be in that mix. Um, I think that, that they'll probably look at a couple of freshmen, Jaquez Smith, um, Malachi Holt Bennett, um, who's a, a, who was a late ad in their, their freshman class from Alabama. What is interesting is, I don't think you're going to see a player in that slot position that is as shifty and quick as Matthews, but I think that in all likelihood um, you're going to see somebody who's bigger and, and more physical. And so it's kind of using it differently. And I mean, we saw Matthews went out early in that, that Western Kentucky game. Uh, it was kind of a weird play. He was retreating to, to recover a punt that he'd muffed and something happened the ACL happened as he kind of sort of went to the ground. I don't know. It was, it's kind of hard to tell exactly how it happened, but obviously, you know, he tore his ACL. So um, tough, tough way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Indiana was lining up Peyton Hendershot in the slot. It was lining up Ty Freifogel in the slot. And the answer this week, when we said, who's, who's DJ Matthews replacement, um, you know, Tom Allen reeled off enough names that basically the answer was everyone is DJ Matthews replacement. So you don't want to understate it in the sense that um, I don't think that I think Michael Penix is really, really comfortable with him. And I think that just from a, a speed and sort of an elusiveness perspective, he's, he was he actually really added a lot to that offense. On the other hand, it's, it's not like we've got three years of evidence to point to, you know, he actually sat out the 2020 season and transferred from Florida state Um but what I think Indiana needs as much as anything else, and, and this was maybe a, one of the encouraging kind of subplots of the Western Kentucky game, was, you know, in that game, Hendershot broke 100 yards. Uh, first Indiana tight end, surprisingly, to break 100 yards since like 1985 or something like that, something insane. And Freifogel had 10 catches, Miles Marshall, I forget how many he had exactly, but another guy who had – some real problems with drops against Cincinnati became a lot, was a lot more reliable against Western Kentucky. And you felt like once Penix saw those guys making some, some difficult catches, you know, some, some sort of 50, 50 catches, he started getting more comfortable as well. And so if losing DJ Matthews, maybe sharpens everybody else up 5%. I'm not saying it's a good thing for Indiana, but it will at least have had some sort of positive knock on effect because while a lot of the talk about that offense up until the Western Kentucky game had been about Penix, understandably. The reality was his pass catchers weren't helping him very much, especially as wide receivers. And so if they needed a little bit of a wake-up call to say, you know, hey, the margin for error here needs to be 
you know, zeroed out. They got one, and that needs to kind of stick around, I guess, for the rest of the season. Do they hold up? To, do they hold up to pressure? You you mentioned earlier, uh, Indiana offensive line. Sorry for stepping on you, Tyler. Um, Indiana's offensive line up and down. Um, how how do you think they'll handle the scenario of being in a night game at Beaver Stadium, playing against the pressure that the Penn State's I guess defensive ends and defensive linemen have been able to put on in the past? You watch that Auburn game. Um, what uh, I guess how do you think this offensive line can hold up, and and what what kind of ripple effect would that have on Penix? Yeah, I mean, the line is probably better in pass pro than blocking the run. And Indiana's also kind of done some um, – nobody said this in so many words, but I think Indiana's sort of run blocking struggles or inconsistencies probably down a little bit to the fact that Indiana's blocking for a very different kind of running back this year. Um, Stevie Scott's floating around somewhere in the NFL now, and they replaced him with Stephen Carr, who's a transfer from USC. And, you know, Scott was just – 230 pounds, heavy downhill. When you were blocking for him, it was just sort of like move the line. He'll hit it hard. He'll fall forward. Car is shiftier, more of a cutback, you know, kind of runner, more of kind of a jump cut runner. And so I think some of the the some of the inconsistency in blocking the run has been about getting used to, you know, maybe some some more gap oriented schemes and things like that, rather than just sort of thinking about, you know, basically hat on hat blocking. Um, the line, and this is simplistic the line has been better when it hasn't been blitzed so when it's you know when it's it's been now that that wasn't necessarily true at iowa but indiana was pretty much terrible almost everywhere at iowa for at least about half that game so um again i think indiana can to some extent anyway mentally just kind of box that game up and set it to one side it's it's when and this is kind of one of those sort of like, well, can the line be better? Does the quarterback need to be better? It's when a defense starts adding extra blitzers that I think that they they start to struggle a little bit. They're an experienced group. You know, I mean, the, the, the likely starting line will be second-year Juco transfer senior, uh, redshirt sophomore. Dylan Powell, I think, is now in his either his sixth or his seventh season. Um He's had quite a journey. He transferred in from Stanford last year. Um, a true junior and then a redshirt senior, I guess, at right tackle. So, like, they're, they played a lot of football. They played a lot of football together. Uh, you know, the, the, again, the road environment shouldn't bother them any more than it, it normally would. Um, but I think that it's, it's when you start getting creative with your pressure and you start adding bodies that, that you give them trouble. And, again, that's simplistic to say. That's probably true of a lot of offensive lines. But I think part of, too, what was – it is kind of that symbiotic relationship between a quarterback and his offensive line. The line could have protected Penix better. Penix could have had better timing and rhythm. If he's getting the ball out faster, defenses feel like they can't blitz as much because they need to drop back and the pressure isn't affecting him. Western Kentucky actually did turn the pressure up on him, and Indiana's line didn't necessarily do a great job at times of – relieving it and it didn't knock him out of his rhythm and again like western kentucky we're sitting here talking about western kentucky and trying to to draw conclusions from it that will fit against penn state or ohio state or michigan or whoever um but what i said after that game was like indiana had to start somewhere you know i mean the, the, there was a feeling after cincinnati that it was kind of spiraling a little bit and they needed to start recovering their season somewhere and that was probably not an ideal game to have to do it. And they still went there and won. Um, so it was at least a positive first step. The question is whether you can add on to it now. And I think that one thing you'd be encouraged about if you're Indiana is that even as kind of the, you know, Penix looked really good early, got in his rhythm, spread the ball around. I think 10 different guys had a catch in that game. And then even as Western Kentucky maybe started to sell out and pass coverage and blitz a little bit more to try and get him off his spot and get him out of that rhythm, he didn't really lose it. And so again, you know, if it Indiana's line can certainly be better blocking both the run and certainly the pass. On the other hand, if it gets something closer to vintage Michael Penix, then that's kind of the counter move of saying, well, if you want to bring six and give that line a little bit more trouble, you know, here's one of the, here's a guy who holds a bunch of tight end receiving records in Indiana. Good luck, you know, covering him, or here's the reigning big 10 re receiver of the year. And we're going to move him both boundary positions. We're going to play him in the slot. We're going to get, 
you know, crazy with it. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the part of kind of the continuing sort of evaluation of the recovery of Michael Penix, if you want to say that, is basically not just how does he handle the blitz, but how good can he be in maybe affecting what a defensive coordinator feels like it can comfortably do against him. Zach, I've got one more thing to throw your way. We're only halfway through the week here. We're pretty early on in our media availability, but every every session is going to have a question about that 2020 matchup in Bloomington and how it ended and what it meant for that 2020 Penn State team. Are there conversations going on in Bloomington on your beat, uh, you know, everyone trying to turn attention back to last October? Because here, players, Franklin, are quick to shut it down. They say 2021 Indiana is the focus, not 2020 Indiana. How much is it actually being discussed right now on your beat? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's come up. Um, Indiana kind of had this this weird – I want to say that – I mean, they, Indiana tried, it seemed like, very hard this offseason to kind of flush 2020 in the sense that I don't think they wanted anybody to think that they thought – 2020 guaranteed them anything in 2021 like they, they they were happy to talk about hey listen we believe in ourselves and we want to compete for a big 10 title and you know yada 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 but there was also sort of this distinct like we know it's not 2020 anymore we know that it's a new season with new challenges and we're not sneaking up on people and things like that and like honestly to the point that especially after that Iowa game I sort of wondered if Indiana almost maybe played 2020 down a little too much like that like they'd they were so intentional about trying to put all of that success in the past that maybe they they lost a little bit of swagger or a little bit of confidence from it. Um, or maybe Iowa really was just just a, a horrible day at the office. Those happened too. Um, but, I mean, it, it's come up, but I think Indiana has been eager for a while now to sort of say, you know, number one, 2020 is very much the past for us and it's not going to do us any good now. And number two, you know, we still have a healthy respect if I'm speaking for Indiana here, um, but there's still a healthy respect for the challenge of living in the Big Ten East. And if you want to win the Big Ten out of the East, you're going to have to bring yourself to the level of a Penn State, of an Ohio State, of a Michigan. Um, And again, like I I think in a weird way, like Indiana's kind of learned as a program how to handle success better in the last two or three years. Um, but I think that that maybe kind of learning how to handle status is maybe sort of the next challenge, if that makes sense for Indiana. Um, learning how to strike that balance between, you know, not wanting to be disrespectful, not wanting to be casual, not wanting to provide bulletin board material for anybody, while also maybe carrying yourself in a way that says, yeah, but we've also earned the right to feel this to, to this ambition. We've earned the right to this expectation and, and, you know, to, to feel like we should be allowed to pull up a chair at the big boys table. And um, so that, that game doesn't, I mean, everybody acknowledges it was a big moment. It was a great moment for the program, but I think Indiana has been eager. I would argue maybe almost at, at times a little too eager to kind of consign all that to the past when maybe a little bit of that, you know, Hey guys, remember what we did might not have gone, a little bit more of that might not have gone amiss actually zach asking for our youtube viewers you come on the lions 24 7 podcast a pennsylvania institution and i believe you're wearing all braves gear is that right well this is a jason isbel hat oh okay very nice but, very nice. but- <laughs> it is i believe styled after the atlanta braves jason yeah he's a he's a <laughs> being fellow mutual twitter followers for reasons i still don't understand and uh, longtime Braves fans. So He's probably a big, big Liverpool guy. Um, before we get you out of here, uh, any thoughts on the prediction? I know you probably run yours later in the week, but um, you seem to have mentioned a, a couple of different score possibilities. But what do you, how do you see this one playing out on Saturday? I, I don't run predictions. I loathe predictions. Um, I mean, it's it's hard for me to see Indiana winning the game. You know, I, I um, like I think S and P Plus had a nineteen point underdog that. That seems a little bit wide to me, but at the same time, Indiana's offensive, you know, efficiency absent that one game against Western Kentucky has been pretty bad this year. So I understand why the computer numbers probably don't like IU very much right now. Um, It is hard for me to see Penn State losing this game. 
you know, it's, it, it is for all everything we can say about Indiana has gotten better or, you know, Penn state wants revenge or whatever. It's, it's also just Penn state on a Saturday night in happy Valley. Like they win most of those. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Indiana gives a better accounting of itself than it did against Iowa. And if it doesn't, then I think that probably we need to have some hard, you know, kind of the, the, the wider media, IU fans, whatever, uh, needs to have some some tough conversations about whether or not this team is good enough to go to a bowl game this year. Um, you know, but I think I think Indiana can put up a fight, particularly if they can get Clifford off his game a little bit. Um, and I don't think that's going to be as easy as it's been at times. And it, not that it was easy in the past, but I think it was easier than it is going to be this time. Um, I, I would still back, I mean, you know, 30, 35, 24, 35, 28, you know, something like that. I, I think I could see a game where Indiana plays well enough to come out of the game, feeling good about itself and feeling like it, it, you know, it, it, it has very little to um, to be ashamed of, but then also a game where Penn State looks back on it and says, eh, we were always kind of in control. Like, I mean, even comparing it to that Western Kentucky game, Indiana only won by two, but Western Kentucky never led. Indiana kicked four field goals. They outgained Western Kentucky on the, gra- uh, on the ground and through the air. They had like twice as many first downs, you know, I think 15, 16 more minutes of time of possession. And it was sort of one of those games where like probably – everybody gets to feel good in a sense because it's from Western Kentucky's point of view, it's close. It could have gone the other way, but from Indiana's point of view, really the final score probably flatters Western Kentucky. I could see kind of a similar sort of situation this weekend in, in reverse where Indiana performs well enough to feel good about itself and to, to sort of say, Hey, this is progress. We're still getting better. And we're finally the other side of this, this, you know, God awful, five game start to the season. Um, and now we have the bye week to regroup, but Penn state can also say, but you know what? We were never really in serious danger there. You know, we, we were always kind of in control of that game. So maybe something that's, that's close and then pulls away a little bit late, you know, maybe Penn state by 14, something like that. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. I thought you were going to show your friend the door. I usually do, but uh, no, we we do appreciate having Zach here. He's always always welcome on this podcast, no matter what Braves regalia he has on. Um, he is a Southerner by the, by trade. I know you haven't picked up on the accent, but uh, yeah, it's always great to have Zach on. Uh, we're going to miss him this weekend, but we're going to catch up down the line. Zach, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, as always. All right. See you, Zach. Um, it- Good stuff from Zach. I'm not sure what that was in that can, but I'm pretty sure if it's 10:30 a.m. here, it's got to be afternoon in Indiana, right? Yeah, he's, that's he's that's good. how that works. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're good. I'm pretty sure that was a seltzer. We'll we'll give him that one. So, <laughs> um, Sean, first off, um, not feeling necessarily any better about Indiana's chances after hearing from Zach, but we'll get into our predictions next uh, next episode, and we'll talk a little bit more about how things are progressing for Penn State. Um, we just got a few minutes left here on our show to talk Penn State. Um, wanted to to know Sean Clifford, Big Ten Player of the Week, just like we all saw coming for a four and Penn State team ranked fourth in the country. It was a makeup call from uh, from two weeks ago. So uh, yeah, I mean he obviously put up the big numbers. I'm personally not a big fan of of the FCS opponents getting or a player getting a player of the week against FCS opponents, but in this case, as a makeup call for the Auburn game, we'll definitely uh, definitely give that one to Clifford. He's certainly been on his game and certainly has has turned it around uh, probably beyond anyone's expectations, other than his own, of course. But uh, yeah, he's been he's been very good and another big one on Saturday night. 401 yards, four touchdowns through the year uh, for Clifford against Villanova. Um, and then, Sean, uh, recruiting, uh, we've had a chance to, to talk to some guys who were on campus. Uh, I know Brian Doan's been catching up with a few players. I spoke with a lineman out of Texas about his time um, in Happy Valley on Saturday. Um, you know, We talked about the Barnwell commitment, but there's another commitment that's scheduled. We talked about this earlier in the week, Omari Evans, a wide receiver out of Texas. He's set to make a decision in the next few days. Um, any, anything popping out to you on the recruiting trail here midweek space being what it is, this has always been one that we've talked about as, you know, the potential for, for Amari Evans more to get shut out than, than anything else. And I think things seem to be trending in Penn state's direction. As I mentioned, you're not going to see Penn state turn down too many four, three guys. They had them at his camp or had them 
had him on campus, did one of those private workouts. Those are new. So that's why I'm stumbling over myself. Uh, but I ran a four, three, a couple of times, um, you know, some, some work to do on a development standpoint from as a wide receiver, he's a high school, um, uh, quarterback, mostly a running quarterback, um, has played some DB as well. Some schools of recruiting him as DB. One of those ones, it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not comparing him to, to the player at all, but when Parker Washington was coming out, we had questions about why is Penn State and Wisconsin the only, you know, why are they the ones that are heavily in the mix here? And with Amari Evans, you're wondering that about Penn State and Rutgers and, you know, there's some other schools, Virginia's in there, a couple other schools as well. Um, but you just have those same questions because how, how do you, how do you, if you're a Texas school, let a four, three guy get out from under you, especially not, you know, not necessarily even a Texas or a Texas A&M, but Baylor, TCU, TCU has made a living off of these type of guys in the, in the past. So um, that one, you kind of scratch your head about, but you've seen him in person. You saw him work out. He went through the position drills and things like that. You feel pretty good about him, got him back to campus for the official visit. And uh, you know, for me, you know, I haven't cast that crystal ball yet, but it seems like Penn state's trending in that direction. And, you know, with space being what it is, you're not going to see a ton of 2022 visitors popping back up on campus, but still got Jay Sean Barham out there. Things seem to be going positively in that, in that direction too. So Penn state, you're not, you're not going to get them all, but if you look at the last couple of months of Penn state recruiting in the 2020, the class of 2022, it's been kind of a ridiculous hit rate. So uh, you feel confident going against Rutgers. And I know I'm not, even making a Rutgers joke about that. You just seem to win those battles more often than not. So um, things seem to be positive, trending positively for, uh, for Amari Evans heading into his announcement on, on Saturday. Of course, we're going to continue. I know Brian Doan just called me while I was on the phone. So we're going to continue doing our uh -oh. research on that one. But uh, yeah, that could, the, the, by the time this thing is, it gets out, maybe, maybe it's changed completely. Um, but We'll, we'll talk a little bit more tomorrow about the visitor list. Uh, should be a big weekend. There's a, a little um, event happening in Harrisburg that usually draws prospects to it. So that will uh, boost Penn State's recruiting weekend. I put up something late last night about Penn State's prospects at linebacker in 2023. It's a VIP piece on 20 uh, on lines 24 seven uh, linebacker. Shockingly, always a hot button issue uh, for uh, Penn State fans following recruiting. But I think there's a little bit more clarity in the 2023 class than there is than there was in the 2022 class. I mean, remember all those five star mailbag questions about oh, yeah. uh, how many how many linebackers, who are the linebackers, all that stuff. And it seems to be working itself out. But you, you give yourself a little bit more of a, a bigger pond of fish in, in that 2023 class. Very eventful portion of the calendar right now. The 2022 class trying to, to finish strong. 2023 class just starting to get together. And then, of course, we got this 4-0 Penn State team to cover. A lot going on at lines247.com. Get all access through a VIP subscription, which is 30% off right now for an annual VIP deal. Sean, it is time for the five-star mailbag, which you mentioned. And this is a good question uh, entering October here in a couple days. Which Penn State player has been the most pleasant surprise through one month. Um, I'll give you first pick here. There's a few directions you can go in. Well, there's one direction you can go in and it's the obvious Sean Clifford. And I, I mean, I, I, he's been such a pleasant supply surprise. He's kind of disqualified from this question. Right. It's I mean, like that's too obvious. obvious of it. Yeah. Answer. It's too <laughs> obvious. I'm going to steal your answer and go with Jesse Lucetta. You um, stole my been, answer. Dan. <laughs> of course I did. Jason always not here anymore. Um, no, I uh, stole your answer because this is a guy that he was kind of in between, you know, in the middle there didn't look great at linebacker last year. You're not sure what he could get at defensive end. We've always talked about him being a potential defensive lineman um, just because of that frame and, you know, kind of the way he plays the game. Um, it's just been tremendous. I mean, I don't think there's any way around it. He's been a guy that's, that's really stepped up and, and made plays that get the guys making that or playing that position are supposed to make gotten pressures, gotten turnovers. You know, he's, he's he picked off that pass a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I, I just think, you know, you kind of tickled with the way that that change has gone and you look at, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call it a position change um, because that's kind of that assembly line that goes corner to safety, safety to linebacker, linebacker, defensive end and so on. Um, but, you know, that's a they haven't always hit. And that's the thing that you look at Luketa and say this one has been this one has been really good for Penn State. I think I'm going to go to the other side um, and say Arnold Ebicady. And uh, I, I, I talked about him being the guy that I thought would be their breakout player this year. But that was me just kind of projecting and, and you never know if, if all the preseason hype and the spring camp hype is going to translate on the football field when you're making the jump from Temple to Penn State. It did right away. It did from the first defensive possession uh, or from the first defensive series against Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and from there on out, I mean, has it been a continued dominance? No, it hasn't been that stretch, but it's also been an opportunity here in recent weeks. 
to make sure you're not loading him up with 60 reps every single week. So I'm really curious to see how he comes out the gates in this game in particular against Indiana. You remember last year, this was the start of the almost sack trend in the conversation. They were in Penick's face so much last year in Bloomington, but they couldn't finish off a lot of those plays. I like his chances to get that going in a positive way this Saturday night back in Beaver Stadium. I think he starts to remind people once more the kind of impact he can make on this team. And I would say just the ability to lean on him for so many snaps without uh, you know, sacrificing anything from what we've seen, that's huge because you're very thin at defensive end. You're not having to throw some of these younger uh, you know, players who still need seasoning, still need reps on the practice field, maybe transitioning from another position. You haven't had to lean on those guys a lot. Nick Tarburton's a part of that. Luketa, you just covered ground there. But I think even in your most, uh, you know, most optimistic viewpoint, I don't think you could really have seen AK being such a set it and forget it figure on this defensive personnel here through one month of the season. He was the guy I had in mind when I asked Zach about the p- potential pressure situations. I think he could have a big game this week. And we'll switch it to the third facet here for, for another answer. Jordan Stout. I mean, after his punting performance last year, there were certainly questions about not, not anybody taking his job, but there were certainly questions about could he be an effective guy in, in all three facets. Right now he's averaging 49.17 yards per punt, which, by the way, fourth in the Big Ten. There, you've got four uh, four punters in the top seven uh, of punting average uh, this year in the, out of you the Big Ten. You think Big so. Ten football, you think damn good punters. Yeah, Rutgers is there, Michigan State's there. You know, it, it, it's really um, – it's really been a phenomenal season so far for Jordan Stout as a punter. Of course, he you know he had that hiccup early in the season, but you look at back you look back at what he did last year as a punter, and it may have been too much on his plate or whatnot. Um, he's been tremendous. I don't think he's had a kick returned. Um, I didn't I, I didn't look too closely at the box score for for Villanova to see if that happened, but uh, it's uh, he's really he's really making that putting that leg to good use, and I think it's been a real pleasant surprise through one month. Stout's punting plus the way the defense has performed. It's been a really good recipe for this Penn State team through four weeks. We'll see what happens week five. Uh, good job setting the stage there with Zach uh, for this Indiana squad. We'll give some thoughts on uh, Penn State going into this matchup. Our final predictions on the next episode, of course, late Saturday night, early into Sunday. We're back with our post-game podcast. You can catch all of this wherever you find your podcast, wherever you have been listening for these months and years. But you can also now catch us on YouTube. Our channel is just simply Lines 24-7. We'll see you there. We'll talk to you real soon. And check us out on Lines247.com as this week continues and our coverage rolls on. On behalf of Sean, thanks to our producer, Lance Glenn. I'm Tyler Donahue. This is the Lines 24-7 podcast.